From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. I wanted to tell stories which were not the same old Hollywood stories that we are seeing. I think that's the same thing for the Canadian filmmakers. Canadians want to tell Canadian stories so that you have a choice. You want to see your story reflected on the big screen, regardless of where you come from. It's, it, that's the answer. I didn't see my stories reflected in, this, in the films that I was seeing. On this episode of What the Job, I interview documentary filmmaker and producer Selwyn Jacob. Selwyn immigrated to Canada from Trinidad in the late 60s. He got a degree in education from the U of A and was a teacher before he became a filmmaker. The movies he's made and produced often focus on the experiences of black Canadians and other marginalized groups. He shares with us the winding path he took to becoming a filmmaker, the skills needed to tell a good story, his experience as a black filmmaker living in Alberta, and why he chose to make documentaries in Western Canada. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. What's your name and what's your job? My name is Selwyn Jacob, and um, currently I'm a retired producer-director in the film business. Uh, And I know you've had a long career in the film business, but I want to go all the way back because your connection to the U of A is that you did an education degree. I did. I did. And then you were a teacher. So can you tell me what what drew you to education? Um, Well, essentially, I started off as a teacher. I think I'm originally from Trinidad. And when you graduated from high school back in the day, there weren't too many options, you know, for people. University was available, but it wasn't necessarily the norm. So most people my age at that time would go into teaching. And so a teaching college was opened in Trinidad, which was taking people who were very young in their careers, just starting off either straight from high school or with two years um, experience. And I happened to enter that uh, teacher's college because I knew that would give me some sort of professional um, qualification. And my goal at that time was to try to immigrate to Canada. And one of the things that I could use this teaching degree for is the fact that I was hireable. I had some sort of job potential. So I came to Canada in 1968, primarily to attend the University of Alberta and to work on my Bachelor of Education degree. This was in 1968. And because I'd gotten two years credit for the work done in Trinidad, I was able to complete my Bachelor of Education degree in 1970. So here I was, I had this graduation degree, but something deep inside was telling me that's not necessarily what I wanted to do. So I spent a year in graduate school uh, just doing a whole bunch of courses in physical education and subjects that really interested me. And I got to the point where I was frustrated 
And I thought, okay, I'm going to quit all of this and go to film school in California because film was really the thing that I was passionate about. So I enrolled in the uh, master's program in film education at the University of Southern California. Uh, graduated from California in 1975 and returned to Edmonton, hoping to get some kind of a job anywhere in the film industry. And of course, back in 1975, there wasn't a sort of, um, there wasn't any semblance of a film industry per se. Um, maybe if you're working in television, that was it, making documentaries for the news and that sort of a thing. So luckily, I'd had my Bachelor of Education degree, and in a way, that was very uh, calculated, because I thought if there's no job for me in the film industry, at least I have my teacher's uh, qualification. And I taught a little bit in a place called Hobima for about a half of a year. And then I got a full-time job in Northern Alberta with the Laclabish School Division. So I went up to Laclabish and I taught there from 1976. No, yes, from 1976 until 1981. So you had this whole time, you said you had this desire to get into film. Why was that? I think it stemmed from the fact um, I remember seeing my first movie and I would have been around 10 or 11 years old. And I was just taken in by the whole concept of being in this dark room and watching these images. And um, it was so exciting. I just wondering, well, how do they make movies? And is this something that I could find myself doing? So that's where the impetus uh, came from, from being 10 or 11 years old. And all the time I was at high school, all the courses that I would be taking and fascinated, I'd be having these daydreams, you know, we'd read something about in Shakespeare, we would read something and, you know, about Charles Dickens, you know, Moby Dick, all of those were the literature of the time that you were exposed to. But in my mind, I was trying to see, okay, what would these stories be like if they were set in the Caribbean. So I, I was just immersed in movies throughout. And I think when I was maybe in my teens or early 20s, I picked up this magazine and it was from a, a US publication called Ebony. And there's a black gentleman on the, on the cover of the magazine. So I flew quickly to the article and they said, He's a filmmaker and he studied filmmaking at the University of Southern California. So that was, you know, that was the light there. The, the light came out, the light bulb came on at that time. There's something called a film program and there are universities that offer training in that line of uh, business or that line of work. So I think back in my early, te late teens or early twenties is when I knew exactly like this is what I wanted to do. Somehow or the other, I will make myself a filmmaker by going to film school. So you did teach, you were teaching. Yes, yes, I, I taught I taught in Trinidad after I came out of teacher's college for about three years. And again, everything adds up. You know, you graduate from high school, you graduate from teacher's college. 
but you're not from wealthy parents who would say you want to go away to study from school. Here's a tuition, here's your accommodation. So essentially, I worked in teaching in Trinidad for about three years just to get the money so that I could attend the University of Alberta. And then after I graduated there, came back from film school, had the, the usual uh, loan, student loans to pay back, I had to go find a job. And so that job was teaching, which got me to Lac La Biche. I spent uh, four years in Lac La Biche with the school division there. And I came back to Edmonton and taught at um, Highlands Junior High for about two years. And right then how did you finally get into filmmaking then? Well, when I got out, when I got up to um, Lac La Biche, this would have been in 1976. And Lac La Biche was a place where you know, there's some people from Lac La Biche and everybody else was from somewhere else. And a lot of teachers, people in the arts ended up in Lac La Biche. And we started talking about a film society. So I founded a, a film society there and we'd show films and have these conversations. And then somebody who was a resident said to me, um, I understand you're a filmmaker. I said, yes. He says, well, you should probably make a film. There's a black colony in a place called Amber Valley, which is just about 30 miles south of, south of um, Lac La Biche. And I was just dumbstruck. I mean, I, I hadn't heard, first of all, you'd heard, hear rumors that Blacks seldom um, migrated to Edmonton or any place that far north. And to find out that there's a Black colony just half an hour from here, I said, I should find out about this. So I got in my car and drove down and was introduced to the community. And I just started talking to the people about why they left Oklahoma and why they came to Canada. So I did the research on my summer holidays. I got a research grant to, um, to write a report on what I was doing. And I used the money I got to do the research to actually make the film. So in making that first film, I started making it around 1979 and finished it in 1984. So what I would do is I would teach from September to June and then July and August, I would be working on my films so that I kept my teaching job and tried to make these films on the side. So that was the very first film I made and I learned how to produce, how to direct, how to write, how to do everything. So that, that's how I actually got into it. I got into it by becoming what is known as an independent filmmaker. It must be challenging to be an independent filmmaker. <laughs> I mean, because it's not just the art that you have to be good at. You also have to do all that other stuff too, right? It is, you know, but I think if you really want to be a filmmaker, I think you, you know, it does something to your character. It does something to your sense of... Um, resilience, perseverance, all of those things which you need later on, as opposed to somebody picking you up and say, Selwyn, here's $200,000, go make a film. I mean, that's not how it happens. It does happen, but that's not necessarily the norm. So by doing it that way, and I think the, the, the good thing that happened to me is because I had a real job. I, I had a, a job as a teacher and I still wasn't, um, confident enough to, to be sure that I could make it as a filmmaker. It was very, very iffy at that time. You know, there are certain 
lines of work you you get into it because you're passionate about it but then you have to be realistic is it going to pay, pay the bills and a lot of jobs in the arts you know they they're very very difficult to survive on so if you're driven by passion you got to find a way how can i survive by doing that and i think i i sort of was always very very nervous about making it as a filmmaker so i held on to my teaching job for as long as possible. When did you when did you get to the point where you realized you could commit yourself fully to filmmaking? Well, let me just go back in the trajectory then, and then it might be easier for me to, to, to answer that question at that point. So I did this first film in 1984, and then I made a, a second film about a football player from a place called North Battleford, Saskatchewan. And he was a Canadian running back, and he made it to the New Orleans Saints. So I found out about that story while I was actually in this place called Lac La Biche. And so I contacted the family. I went to Saskatchewan, contacted the family, and made this film called The Saint from North Battleford. And it's a nice Canadian story, but it's about this same group of um, black settlers who had left Oklahoma and homesteaded on the prairies. So at that point, I had a sort of a niche market in the sense that I was doing Canadian stories that no one else was doing. And I got invited to the Toronto Film Festival. So that was kind of the highlight of my career. I went down to Toronto and I met other filmmakers and everybody was saying, well, you should, you know, you should move to Toronto and, you know, this is where the action was in filmmaking. And I said, you know, I'm happy in the West. I like the stories that are set on the prairies. So I made those two films in um, 84, 89, and then 91, the National Film Board asked me to come to Montreal to do a short drama. They were thinking of dealing with the topics of uh, racism in the classroom. So these films were educational. And I did a film in 91 called Carol's Mirror. And I did another film called Al-Tazmim, which is set in Alberta. It's about the first mosque that was built in Canada, was actually built in Edmonton. So these are stories. And I was able to make those four films um, while I still was employed. By that time, I was no longer teaching. I was working for Alberta Education in their media section. And this was just buying films that teachers could use in the classroom. So I was relatively happy uh, using my knowledge of film and my knowledge as an educator. So I combined the two. So the stories for me now, the stories were getting bigger and more, um, bigger in scope, bigger in budget. And I wanted to do a film about the sleeping car porters, which was a story I'd heard about. People would say, someone you should do a film on this topic. This is important to the black community. And I wanted to do this film called The Road Taken, but I realized I couldn't, um, I couldn't do it the way I made my films. I, I would have to be dedicated to this one project. So I went to my supervisor and I said, um, I'd like to take a year leave of absence to go work on this film. And they said, no problem. So this would have been in 1996. So I took the year's leave of absence. I made the film Sleeping Car Porters. And by the time I'd made the film, 
It played at the Toronto Film Festival and it got good national exposure. I found that I was being pulled into the direction of being a filmmaker. And so I, I went back to my job and I promptly resigned from my job at Alberta Education. So it took me what, that would have been 20 years, I would say, being a sort of a hybrid educator slash filmmaker. And I went 100% independent. Was there, was there a lot of crossover between teaching and filmmaking? I would say definitely, definitely, I'd say. I mean, in my particular case, I think um, I had a passion for doing research and some of it could be considered educational, but I, I would go to the archives. So most of my films, you know, from the blacks coming from Oklahoma, I would go to the archives, I'd read about the newspaper reports at the time. Um, you'd go to the Edmonton archives and you'd see all of these photos. So that, that really um, filled a certain need that I had for, you know, to educate myself. Um, you had to write. I think writing is very important. You have to have a good writing skill. So I found I, I used all of that. And then in personal interaction, if you're, if you're dealing with other people and the crew and so on, you have to have pretty sound interpersonal communications, I would say, or the ability to just deal with all different types of personalities. So definitely, um, I would say later on in my career as a producer, it is crucial. And I think my background as a teacher has come in very handy because uh, you, when you're producing, you're working with the director and you're pretty much mentoring that director. And you have to make the person feel comfortable, bring them along, help them along where they don't know certain things. So definitely I would say my um, exposure as a teacher or my training as a teacher has come in pretty handy. I'm curious how you or why you decided to make documentary films um, growing up, you know, going to cinema. What, yeah. what was it that drew you to those sort of nonfiction stories? Um, well, it's um, strictly pragmatism. I mean, I was there. My, my goal was to make this film as a doc, not as a documentary, documentary, as a drama. As a matter of fact, um, when I went to film school, I, I never took a documentary uh, film course. So I'm pretty much self-taught in the, in the area of documentary filmmaking. All my training at USC was oriented towards making narrative films. And as I said, when the film board was established in Edmonton back at that time, people would say, well, we don't do any dramas. So what you should do is what most people did at the time, they started off making documentaries and then they eventually switched the narrative. I would say I got into documentary and I got seduced into telling documentary stories and being uh, surprised in a way about the amount of um, satisfaction you can get from watching a documentary compared to doing a fiction. You know, fictions are good when they work, but sometimes you have to look at it and look at your audience and look at where the industry was. Um, it was a long time before a feature film was made in Edmonton. It was Ann Wheeler, uh, you know, she did some short films before, but Bye Bye Blues in the late 80s. 
was one of the premier films that actually said, yes, we can make narrative films and we can make them from Western Canada. It's interesting because now in Edmonton, of course, they're shooting a block like yes. Last of Us movie, right? A big blockbuster. So Yeah, it, definitely. Same thing with Vancouver. I mean, when I came back from film school, um, they weren't really shooting films in Vancouver the way how it has become, you know, the Hollywood of, of the North, you know? And so, and, but then my goal was not to really work into the industry in a non-creative way. So in a way, I feel the fact that I, I made the films I made, I was able to tell the stories that I wanted to tell, as opposed to working on somebody else's film. And how did you identify stories that you, when you, I'm just wondering, when did you see stories when you were like, I can make a film out of this, or this needs to, to this story needs to be told? What, what was key to you? For me is that, you know, the simple question, I never knew that. <laughs> I, just, I never knew that, you know, like a black, a black community in Alberta, I never heard that. And I, I'll just show you what I mean exactly with that story. I got money from Alberta Culture to make that film. And just out of courtesy, um, somebody invited me to show it to the, who would that have been? I'm not sure if it was the government. It would have been like the Ministry of Culture or something like that. I'm not sure what the term was, but the Culture Department of Alberta Culture. I think that's what it would have been called. And we went to this boardroom and I showed this film. And then at the end, this gentleman <laughs> looked at me and he smiled. He said, you know, I thought I was an authority and I knew everything about Alberta history, but I never knew anything about this group of black pioneers who settled in Alberta. So that answer justifies for me what I, I did you know, the stories I chose. And it's the same thing with um, the scene from North Battleford was an extension of that story. So it was very, very easy for me. Um, I would just read something in the newspaper or see something in McLean's magazine and bingo, I'd say, that should be a documentary. Altazming Mosque, you know, um, I didn't find that, but I was teaching in Lac La Biche and I discovered in Lac La Biche, there's a big Muslim community in Lac La Biche. People don't know that in Edmonton, but a lot of Muslims, um, they came from Lebanon and they were involved with the fur trade, if you can imagine that as well. They're involved in the fur trade and I ran into these people and they knew about the mosque and the mosque was being moved from where it was, it was gonna be demolished. And she said, Selwyn, you should do a film on that before they, they demolished the mosque. So again, um, I never knew anything about the history of the Muslim people in Alberta and Canada. I said, it's a fascinating story. So to answer your question, you know, anytime I said to myself, wow, this is an interesting story. If I don't know about it, then a lot of people, and I was beginning to have that confidence in the stories that I selected that a lot of people could identify with and relate to. So I just kept, you know, going with my gut instinct. You talked about becoming a producer and uh, some of the differences in that job, such as uh, <clears throat> working with directors. How did you become, uh, I, I understand it's with the National Film Board. How did you become yes. a producer? And can you talk a little bit about what that kind of job entails? Okay, so what... In 96, when I took my leave of absence for, from um, 
Alberta Education. I worked for Alberta Education. And I made this film, The Road Taken. And after I made The Road Taken, I was going <clears> to <throat> do something. But I think it was the time when the government decided to get rid of that something called the Alberta Motion Picture Development Corporation. And they used to fund, fund the arts and the whole film, filmmaking infrastructure. And they decided to cut funding to the arts. And that sort of decimated um, any, any, um, any filmmaking sort of enterprise or most of it. If you had a secure job with the CBC or CFRN, that was a local television, you were okay. But anybody starting thinking about moving into independent filmmaking, it became a challenge. So there's an exodus of people live, leaving Edmonton and moving to Vancouver where all of the action was, so to speak. And then I got a call from some, some of my colleagues in Toronto said the film board was hiring three um, filmmakers of color to become producer, to sort of um, work for a, a part of the film board called the Special Mandate Team for Cultural Diversity. They're trying to diversify the producer and the filmmaker and the stories for the National Film Board. And they were looking for somebody in Western Canada. So I was approached and I applied for that job and I became one of the, um, the producers of the special mandate team. And I was responsible for looking for visible minorities to tell their own stories on the four Western provinces. So it was Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC, and I think Manitoba would have been part of my responsibility. So that's, that's I became the, the special mandate uh, producer. I'm just kind of curious of the different skills that are involved in these jobs. And um, maybe we'll start just with filmmaking in general, because I'm thinking about recent grads or even students who are thinking about getting into film. What are the sorts of things that they need to know or this kind of skills that they might need to have if they want to enter that kind of field? Well, right now, I think um, <clears throat> pretty much everybody who wants to work in film right now goes to film school. I mean, when, when I came back here, film school at that time, um, it was a novelty. And probably you could have studied filmmaking at Ryerson Polytechnic, as it was called at that time, and maybe York University. Every place else ordered not necessarily filmmaking, but sort of what we call film theory. So University of Alberta started a program there where it was part of an interdepartmental um, program. So there are maybe two or three courses in film. So you're not gonna become a filmmaker, but a lot of people went that route. But if you're getting into film, and back in the day before I left Edmonton, the concept of having a film co-op was how people circumvented the idea of going to film school. So uh, a co-op was started in Edmonton called FAVA, which is the Film and Video Arts Society of Alberta. Calgary had a film co-op and right across the country, there are numerous film co-ops. So that was the option. That's how people learned to become filmmakers. But then, Nate and Sid started having filmmaking 
uh, components in, in their uh, diploma programs. Um, there's a number of film schools in Vancouver. You could study film at Emily Carr University, um, Simon Fraser. We have the Vancouver Film School. We now have Capilano University. So all these avenues, uh, you're not just going like I did where I had to go to film school in California, come back and then look for people who had the equipment. Now the film schools are available, the technology is available. So to get to the skill set, it is not as expensive and it's not as challenging. So I would say anybody who wants to, um, to get into film will just apply and go to a film school. And at film school, you learn the, the basics. And after you come out from film school, then you try to get a job as a production assistant. You start as very, very low on the totem pool, depending on what you want to do eventually. Because you can go to film school with the idea of becoming a cameraman, an editor, whole bunch of different things. You might want to go into animation. So those are more the craft side of filmmaking. But if you want to tell a story, then you want to get into writing and directing or producing. So you have the creative jobs on one side, and then you have the literally dozens of choices, dozens of choices. When you went to film school, what, what kind of movies do you think did you think you'd end up making? I think I was going to be going back to the Caribbean, to Trinidad in particular. And um, we had a very good multicultural um, society there. We have East Indians, we have Trinidadians, I mean, uh, Afro-Trinidadians. We've got Chinese, Portuguese, and so on. And, and there used to be a lot of things. I mean, we have one of the, the most spectacular Mardi Gras in the world. And so I was thinking, when I would see movies, I'd say, wow, it would be nice to use this as a backdrop for um, telling a story. We have, um, we have the steel band movement, which came from a certain time in the history when the steel band had a very, very bad um, reputation. You know, there are a lot of gang fights and this sort of thing. So those were the things that were relevant to me and my thinking. So if I wanted to make films, I think I would be focusing or would have been focusing on those sort of stories. But I never did go back. I went back and there was really nothing happening. Now they've got a film festival in Trinidad and people are making films locally and telling local stories. So I think um, I was a bit ahead of the curve, so to speak. But if I went back now, Sometimes I see some of the stories that I had in mind and people are telling those stories. So again, I would have to be always being ahead of the curve. And I think if I have to sum it up, I'd say I wanted to tell stories which were not the same old Hollywood stories that we are seeing. I think that's the same thing for the Canadian filmmakers. Canadians want to tell Canadian stories so that you have a choice. You want to see your story reflected on the big screen, regardless of where you come from. It's, it, that's the answer. I didn't see my stories reflected in, this, in the films that I was seeing. And it's interesting, you know, talking about you didn't see your stories reflected and, you know, you've made so many films about marginalized groups or minority groups and you've produced films made by um, people of color. 
Yes. Has, I, I imagine when you first started, you, you must have been pretty isolated, probably not a lot of um, uh, uh, black filmmakers. Has it changed a lot? Has it evolved in Canada? It has. It has, definitely. I mean, as I said, um, for a long time when I started making films in Edmonton, I think I knew of one gentleman, Phil Freezer, you know, who had made three films, you know, while he was based in Edmonton. And everybody else who worked with me on my films were Caucasians or people that they were there. And I had to sort of um, build my confidence, you know, to approach people to work on my films, you know. And so they trusted me. So that's, that's when I started. And then when I got the job and I got to... Um, I got to Vancouver and because of my responsibility, I was getting fabulous stories from all of the non-white Canadians who wanted to tell their stories. So I did like Japanese uh, filmmaker, Obachan's Garden. I did Filipino stories. I did Chinese stories. And I did a lot with indigenous filmmakers. And with all of them, I would say, for me as a producer, I had to respond to the story and the kernel of, of every film that I, I have made, there is some element of something that I can relate to. Even when I was asked to make a film, I would just say, you know, I can relate to this story. Now of the, what, 45 to 50 films I made for the film board, I would say maybe six of them are stories that I really wanted to tell, and I got a chance to hire a filmmaker, and then I had to interview the filmmaker to make sure that they saw the story from my perspective. So I did a film about Harry Jerome, who was a Canadian athlete, and I really wanted to tell that story. And then I kept waiting and waiting, and I was saying, okay, when I get back to making my own films, <laughs> I would tell that story. And it so happened I was able to find a filmmaker and I got the green light to make that film. So even though I didn't direct it, I still felt as though it was one of my ideas, you know, that got on screen. So I got about six like that, you know, Mighty Jerome, Ninth Floor. Those are two big ones, I, I think, uh, and The Journey of Lesra Martin. All those are films that I initiated but and I hired the directors. The rest are the idea, the people coming to me and said, Selwyn, can I pitch you an idea? And if I can relate to the idea, then we collaborate on, on that making. So there are two ways of getting your film out there. You either direct it or you can produce it. There seems to be a lot of balance in making films because there's this businessy side of tenacity, pushing things ahead. Uh, there's technical skills too, um, and of course, there's also still the art. How do you avoid being overcome by all that technical, professional stuff, and still leave space for creative thinking? Well, I, I think the the answer to that question is, you know, that there's a kind of a myth that people feel, you know, that it's a film by Selwyn Jacob. You know, it's not necessarily you get that credit, but you have to have the right cinematographer. You have to have the right editor. You have to have the right sound person. You have to have a whole range of skills. I remember um, I was doing a film and I hadn't had the, the experience of talking to a composer. I don't have a background in music, 
know. And so that's very scary. And you go to the composer and say, well, what do you what do you see here? You know, how what sort of emotions, you know? And that was for me the scariest part to admit that you don't know. But somehow, if the composer is savvy enough, he said, okay, I, I know what you are after, I'll give you this. And then when I hear the music, I will say, okay, this is the song that I was after. This is what I was looking after. You know, so that's um, that, and, and, and you analyze your background. When I went to teacher's college, there's a choir there and everybody belonged to the choir. So I learned a little bit about participating in music, but I cannot read music or anything like that. And I was doing a, a film, um, I was doing a film for the film board called John McCree's War. And the director, it was about the guy who wrote the poem in, in Flanders Field. And so I'm doing this film. I've read about it and I know what it's all about. And we are in the, the music mix, it's called. And they started playing a hymn. And I just remember that and I said, is that whatever the hymn was? And it was, and you know, it's being played with strings and that sort of thing. And I could feel as though they're saying to me, oh, I didn't know you knew music, but it was the only thing that I have had that I could make a comment to say that I'm following. And I know the music was working. And then after that, I just found that I was more confident. I mean, I'm making a film. I know I want jazz music here. I'm not a composer or anything, you know, but the film that I did on Sleeping Car Porters, you know, there's a guy named Joe Seeley, he's a Canadian composer. And he had composed all of these beautiful tracks, you know, and we just bought the CD and used it. And I showed the film about 25 years later and people commented about how effective the music, the music was, you know. So again, um, I wouldn't necessarily say you have to have all of that talent. You have all of that talent and it could be abused. You know, you have to let other people, other people come into the film because they want to help you tell that story. Something I always talk to guests about on this show is the importance of mentorship. And you talked about Phil Frazier and I understand he was a mentor for you. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of mentorship um, in terms of both giving it and receiving it? I would say in the early days, especially if you're a minority person, <clears throat> even if you're not a minority person, you know, there is that phase in your career when you have just graduated from university and technically you have all of the, all of the knowledge to do the job, but what you don't have is the experience. So at that stage, this is where a mentor comes in, you know, you, you get into making a film and then you don't know that, you know, you have to use a lavalier microphone when you're interviewing somebody or when you take a boom microphone to, you know, to get the song. So those little nuances, if you don't have a good song recorder to help you along, you will make your first film and then you're watching the film and the sound is crazy. The levels are all over the place, you know, and things like that. So with my first film, I made some mistakes with that. And by the time I got to the second film, I quickly made the decision, I'm going to get the best technical people to work with me. So if you are a mentor, those would be the people who would, um, you know, give you things like that. I remember making my second film, 
And I went to Banff and it was the same scene from North Battleford. And you make a film and you sit there and you are the only person who knows everything about the film. But your film is not, it's made for you in a sense, but you're showing it to an audience at large. So in the big world, you have what is called test screening and people show it and they give you their feedback and so on. I never had the exposure to that part of the process. So I remember going to Banff Television Festival and I showed the films to some of my colleagues, you know, and everybody was giving me notes and, you know, suddenly you should do this, you should cut this. But I had made the film already. And I look back at that moment and it's a turning point for me. And I said, the next time I make a film, I'm gonna make sure that I have a test screening with different audiences so people know, you can know how the audience is relating to it. And I think that's where a mentor comes in. There are people who right now, the way how the technology is, you can make a film in your basement, you can edit it on your computer, you can do everything there. And then when you bring it out, it's finished. But creatively, it may not be finished. You're missing that step. So sometimes I tell people, okay, this is how you can correct this. This is how you can do it. You, you need to have a sounding board. And I think that's that's where the role of mentoring comes in. Interesting talking about the technology of filmmaking and being able to edit in the computer. It must have come a long way um, since when you first started. I imagine you were like splicing together, you know, uh, cellophane or cellophane or whatever. Big, big time, big time. I mean, I remember going to film school and not knowing that there was something like an editor. I tried to edit the film in the camera. And the first time I saw a moviola, this was using Super 8, and you take the film and you cut it a certain way and you, you splice it. I mean, people don't know why you say cut. You actually cut the film, you know, you cut right here and then you bring another piece. And then, you know, so you did that. And then um, we progressed through the, 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 the movieola when you're looking at it and the, what is called a Steenbeck, that big machine. And you have everything, then you cut up the pieces of film and you have them literally like strips of film hanging. You don't see that anymore. So. Everything is digitized and you can cut an experiment and see what it would look right, right there on the computer. So editing has become a completely different process technically, meaning by the technology has influenced it. But creatively, it's the same thing as that an image is put to another image and it creates a, re a reaction in the, in the, in the, in the viewer's mind. That's all it is. You edit depending on what impact you want the image to have on the audience's mind. And that's something is the same whether you're actually cutting the film physically or whether you're digitally moving things around. Early in this interview, I remember you talked about when I asked how you got into film and you talked about growing up in Trinidad and, and watching movies and, and it was exciting and I thought it was something you might want to do. How has your view of film changed being in the industry? Is it still that sort of magic of cinema? Do you still love going to the theater? I still do. I mean, um, you can't, uh, I, I, I don't know. You know, if I have a conversation with some of my closest friends and I'm talking about movies and they say something like, well, I don't go to the movies, you know, 
it, it comes like a shock to me. I mean, I don't see how you could live a life and not go to the movies, you know, but it's, it's sort of ironic. When I was going to film school, a lot of my friends were becoming engineers and doctors and what have you, you know, the, the, the stock and trade um, careers. And, and what I find, what I found is that I got to a stage where some of these people, they're not my age and they're retired. And what they're interested in is actually the films that I make, you know. So that is what brings us together. So you go to university and you study a, uh, a certain discipline and you have friends just in, in, those, um, in those careers, so to speak. But the one thing that transcends, you know, being a lawyer or being a doctor or being a pharmacist or what have you is the film because these people now have kids and the kids can relate to the stories that they're seeing on the screen. You know? So I, I still have that passion, passion for film. I, I'd go see it. I, I went to see a movie that is actually 60 years old, right? It's called West Side Story. It's based on a play that was on Broadway. And I know that, they, well, I met the director in California when I was studying there. And I looked at this film just last week, there was a special screening. And the story is as powerful now, 60 years later, as it was when it came out. And that to me, I feel is um, how passionate I feel. It's good storytelling, it's good filmmaking, that you could have a film that is 60 years old and it can still speak to somebody, speak to an audience. I feel like I could just keep talking to you about movies all day, but we should probably move along. We should probably do uh, the lightning round. So this is just a series of questions we ask all our guests. Some of them you've already answered, but I'll start with the first one. Have you ever been fired from a job? Uh, let me think. I would. I don't know if you'd call it firing. Yes, I would say yes. <laughs> My contract wasn't renewed. Let's put it this way. When you were a kid, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? I guess you answered this already. And I always wanted. I've always wanted to be in the film business, be it as an actor. I thought at first I wanted to be an actor because I assumed that that's how the story came out. And later in life, I realized it's the people who are making the film are the important ones. So I, I sort of put being an actor in the background and making of the film became what I wanted to do. Have you ever have you ever got to act? Have you ever, you know, sometimes directors put themselves in a film? Have you ever been put in a film? Um, I Yes, I've done that. I was asked by the director to do a cameo. <laughs> what, what's something that people don't know about being a filmmaker, something that's misunderstood? Oh, boy. Uh, I think it's the, the sort of, um, I would say the multidisciplinary um, aspect of filmmaking, you know? You're doing something and you have to become extremely knowledgeable in all aspects of it because you may be telling the actor to do this a certain way, but you better know what you're asking for. Otherwise you can't really direct the actor in my opinion. So you have to have a really broad perspective on life and on everything. What advice would you have for someone who feels like they're in a career rut, like they're just stuck in their job? Um, be adventurous and take a risk, you know? 
What do you think you would be doing if you never got into film? Probably still a teacher or would you be doing something else? Probably I would have been still, I would say I would have been an education, not necessarily a teacher, but I would have been an educator. And what's your favorite thing about about working in movies? Oh, the, you know, the favorite is just the audience reaction. When you make a film and you show it to an audience and you get a standing ovation, I, I don't think you can ask for anything more. Uh, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself just after you graduated, um, let's say at U of A, uh, is there any advice you'd give yourself? No, I, I, I think I, in retrospect, I think I made all of the, the right moves. I mean, I, I think we, my, can I elaborate? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So when I was in high school, you know, you have your, your peers and you're saying, well, in those days, everybody went away to, to study. You know, you went to England or you went to Canada or you went to the United States and um, we all had this goal from high school. Well, we'll be leaving here in four years. And those four years didn't happen for me. It took me 10 years before I was able to migrate to Canada. So I feel as those, those were the, the 10 lost years, you know. But you know, some people had it um, easier because they're from wealthy parents and they're able to go straight from high school to university. I didn't have that opportunity, but I don't regret, regret it. And finally, the last one, uh, in respect to your education or your career path, is there anything that you wish you had done? Well, I wish I had made a feature film, a feature drama. I've made feature documentaries. So and I've, I've had so much fun chatting with you, and I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time. You're welcome, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job, and a special thanks to our guest Selwyn Jacob for taking time to talk to us about his career as a filmmaker. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sboard. It's a great tool, no matter where you are in your career journey. That's all for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.